0: Am I on? Lovely. Well, morning.
1: morning.
0: Well, many of you will, uh, will know that, uh, that my father, Ken, died a, a couple of months ago. Uh, I know some of you met him, and several folk came to the funeral, which uh, I'm personally grateful, thank you, and I'll always remember your kindness. By God's grace, Dad made it to 90, 90 years is a lot of living and when we had to write a tribute it's hard to encapsulate a lifetime into a page and a half but uh, but that we did and i wonder if you would indulge me by listening to a, just a very small section of that other than meeting mum the defining moment of dad's life was finding a living faith in jesus in his middle years there wasn't for him a time or a date, just a growing and deepening realisation that God was real and that Christian faith offered a relationship with God and he wanted it and got it. Everything about dad was quiet and understated. He would never draw attention to himself but that didn't mean he was a pushover and he upset one or two authority figures who thought they'd appointed a yes man not so. Privately and publicly he was utterly solid and reliable, but also had a quality of innocence. When Jesus called his disciples, were told he looked at Nathaniel and said Behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Well, that was my dad. Why am I bringing that up now? And how is that relevant to today's passages? Well, in a moment, we're going to find out. But first, let's pray. Father, your word is here for our instruction. Lord, for our edification. Lord, you want us to grow up into uh, the fullness of our faith into the image of Jesus. And we want to ask you, Lord, that the entrance of your word this morning would bring us light. Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're now um, fully, firmly into the uh, the second half of our series in, in Acts. We're now in chapter 11, as you probably noticed, out of 28 chapters of Acts, but we'll be stopping at 19 um, because there's this little affair called Christmas that's in the way. But up to now, we've watched Beginnings. So the first few chapters of Acts are Beginnings. So we've seen the landmark event of Pentecost and the transformational gift of the Holy Spirit that defines and also inaugurates the new covenant. The Holy Spirit is what defines the new covenant and all that it entails. So it extends beyond external action, what I do to my internal heart motivation. The temple moves from Jerusalem to the heart of the believer, and the temple therefore becomes mobile, and the temple moves from Jerusalem, outside of Jewish borders and heredity. First to Samaritans, we saw that, then to uh, out-and-out Gentiles, we saw that last week with Cornelius, and it's escaped. Now and it's well and truly out to the Gentiles, non-Jews like us, most of us, I would imagine. So we've been introduced to Saul, soon to be renamed Paul. We've seen his conversion and we've watched the early church grow like topsy, accompanied by really vicious persecution and scattering of many believers from Jerusalem to become refugee populations all over the place. So that was the start of Acts, but we're now really in the middle section of Acts, of which is an overlap period, which maps some quite important transitions. Well, what would they be? Well, firstly, there's personnel, because although the first bit of Acts is primarily about Peter, Peter is the main figure of, uh, of the early chapters of Acts, and we're not through with Peter by any matter of means, but now the focus is starting to shift to... Saul soon to become Paul who becomes morphs into the main character and we've also got a geographical transition because whereas the beginning was firmly rooted in Jerusalem now it's escaping as we've just mentioned and Luke is documenting for primarily for outsiders why and how this apparently jewish sect is travelling across the full width of the Roman Empire within a single generation, and he's charting its spread. Though so it's terrific storytelling, widely recognised to be one of the best bits of writing in the ancient world. And today's passage is part of that geographical transition, because we're now switching location. The scene has moved to Antioch. Well, where's Antioch? First slide, please. I should have brought the little electrical, little, uh, little pointer, and I forgot to do that. But if you look at the very middle of the screen, you'll see Antioch, except I'm pulling your leg. It's not the right Antioch. There were three Antiochs, at least, in the ancient world. That was called Pisidian Antioch. Next slide. So the real one, um, and I do apologize for not having the, the pointer. Um, actually, is there any way I could possibly grab that? Is it working? Thank you. Excuse the interruption. Okay, so the the real Antioch is right up there. So that that's a city. You won't be able to read it, I imagine, unless you've exceptional eyesight. But it's called Antakya, and you can recognise the word, can't you? Antioch, Antakya. So that's the modern city, and it's about the size of Reading today. It's, uh, it's 250,000 people, roughly. Um, so, but in those days, Antioch was an ancient metropolis. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire after Rome. And anyone guess what the second largest city was? Roman Empire? Anyone want a stab? Fred? Good guess because it was a Rome colony, but no... Not Jerusalem, no, sorry? Corinth. Not even Corinth, it was Alexandria. So it's the third major city, really. So, unlike uh, other major cities, Antioch is just hugely busy. It's a trading post, it's a multicultural melting pot. And in fact, it already had a well established Jewish population, which is probably why so many early church Jewish Christians from Jerusalem made their way up there. So if you uh, listened to them, if you went into the market, the predominant language would have been Greek because it was colonized originally by Alexander the Great, Alexander the Great, three centuries before. So a lot of that area spoke Greek, but you'd have also heard Aramaic and you might have heard a smattering of Latin. So you might even have heard a little bit of Hebrew and certainly in the synagogue Anyway, so that's where they they ended up. So verse 20, into that setting comes a small flood of Greek-speaking Jewish believers in Jesus, and we're told that some arrived from Cyrene on the North African coast in modern-day Libya, um, and some arrived from Cyprus. But instead of confining themselves to the company of Other Jewish people, they start telling other Greek speakers about Jesus. So, next slide, please. So, surprise, surprise, the Lord's hand was with them. And a result is a great number of people turn to the Lord, believe and turn to the Lord. So, news of that travels back to base back to Jerusalem and as seems to have been the usual policy the church in Jerusalem wanted to check it out so they need to send somebody up to them now who are they going to send to Antioch because really ideally it needs to be a Greek speaker somebody whose first language is Greek and they're fluent and actually it would be kind of handy given that quite a lot of the newcomers were from Cyprus, if it was a chap from Cyprus, and that's Barnabas. So he's ideal, and he's been around since the very earliest days, because if you go back to chapter 4 of Acts, he's mentioned as selling a field and laying the proceeds at the apostles' feet. And that's where he's given his nickname, because Barnabas is a nickname. His real name is Joseph. But forever afterwards, he's known by his nickname, Barnabas, son of encouragement. So Barnabas goes, and the visit is a real success. Barnabas, true to his nickname, encourages them. And even more people are reached with the gospel. But Barnabas isn't done. He spots a gap. This new church in Antioch, it has elders, but no apostolic input. And they're a very young church. But back in Jerusalem, of course, his adopted home, there is. So Barnabas starts thinking, out of the box how do I encourage these people how who can I get involved with this so to Barnabas the answer is really obvious it's Saul if you go back two chapters to chapter nine Barnabas has already met him not long after Saul's conversion And I'm going to very quickly reprise the story in case you weren't here So Saul um, has been on Damascus Road and he's encountered the, the risen Jesus and he goes to Damascus, gets his sight back and what's his next move? He goes to the local synagogue. Well, this local synagogue know who Saul is, and they know perfectly well that he's gone up there to arrest members of this new cult and drag them back to Jerusalem for prosecution, imprisonment, death, whatever they, they choose to do to them. So that was the intention. But Barnabas, sorry, Saul goes to the synagogue and he starts preaching Jesus, and they're flabbergasted. And Saul's reward, of course is an attempt on his life. So they have to get him out of Damascus, which is a walled city. There are people lying in wait by the gate, with, probably with daggers, and they're going to do him in if they see him. So he's let down over the wall and he has to do a runner. They're 150 miles back to, to Jerusalem. Shall we just uh, quickly put the slide back one? So uh, Damascus is there... And Jerusalem is down here, that's about 150 miles, there thereabouts, by, by road. And if you go up here to Antioch, that's another 200 miles. These are not small distances and you couldn't just jump in the car. So anything they did like that was a real major commitment. Anyway, Saul manages to escape to Jerusalem, but now he's got another problem, because Saul is also known in Jerusalem, and the church is, quite understandably, absolutely terrified. So when Saul pitches up, no one believes him. What's he going to do? Well, somebody took him aside, somebody took a risk, and that somebody was Barnabas. And Barnabas takes this huge personal risk, sponsors Saul to the apostles, and the rest, as I say, is is history. So Barnabas goes to find Saul. Now, let's have a look at this again. So uh, this this is Antioch. You can probably see from the green here that that's modern day turkey and turkey has this sort of finger of land and probably shouldn't have had before, but it's got it anyway so there's the antioch now tarsus is actually around the corner here tarsus although we never hear it in the news at least i don't um tarsus is still called tarsus and it's a city of three million people it's larger than greater manchester or Birmingham, believe it or not. It's the fourth largest city in Turkey. It's a little fun fact for you. So again, it's another journey. It's a a fairly lengthy one, but he manages to find Saul and brings him back. So together for the next year, they spend time establishing these new Greek believers. And I wonder draw your attention to verse twenty-four. If you can just move on to that's lovely. So Acts eleven twenty-four. It describes Barnabas. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. That was his reputation. As well as of course being an incorrigible encourager, saying that, try saying that a few times. He's always at it. And our other scripture this morning was Matthew 16, where Jesus asked his disciples, Who do men say that I am? What's our reputation? Yours and mine. These reputations can take a lifetime to build and a second to shatter. They're fragile and they're precious. But as of now, what's yours? What are you known for? Does it matter what people think of you? Well, that's going to be a yes and no answer, isn't it? Because ultimately God's opinion is the only one that really matters. But perhaps unfortunately for us in some respects, Jesus has chosen to tie his reputation to our reputation And people will associate our character with our faith. So like my dear old dad, would you like solid, reliable, principled, guileless as your epitaph? When you're finally called home, would you like to be remembered as a good man or woman, full of the Holy Spirit and faith? Well, the good news is that whatever it is today, it's not fixed. What would you like it to be? Yes, of course, to change your reputation, the best time to start was 10 years ago. But the second best time is today, isn't it? I don't know whether you follow team sport, I still do, Uh, you might not know that the top five European football club squads are all valued at over a billion euros, a billion euros, a thousand million euros, incredible, isn't it? Generally, they're fantastic teams, but the really expensive ones don't always do well. Uh, Manchester United are one of those top five and until yesterday they were eighth in the premiership and because they haven't been really gelling that well as a team and it shows on the pitch. On the other hand famously three years ago if you followed Leicester City, Leicester City's squad when they won the championship was worth a mere £55 Now, that's enough money, isn't it? But it's 15 times less than those top five. So how do you know whether a team, any team, is getting on well together? Well, apart from the results, I guess. Me, I watch a player's reactions, particularly when they're subbed, when they're substituted. Sometimes when you see players trot off, they, uh, they sort of offer their replacement, kind of peremptory high five, and as they go by, and they don't even look at each other. It's, there's no eye contact at all, and they're going through the motions. But on the other hand, sometimes you'll see more prolonged contact. You'll see them actually grasp hands like that as they go off, or even hug Because they want each other to succeed. And unity in church is important and it doesn't really matter whether it's the first century AD in this story or the twenty first century here in St. Matthew's. And most of that unity is fostered through personal encouragement. You know what's coming next, don't you? So are you an encourager or are you a critic? So when you get home on a Sunday, do you have roast vicar for lunch <laughs> or roast anybody else? Can you see the good in others or just their flaws? Because it's easy to see flaws. It doesn't take any wit, any art, any insight, any wisdom or any character to pick up flaws. It's really, really easy. And using the sports analogy, are you content For example, to be a sub or to be on the bench if someone else is building experience, could you invest in someone else instead? Rob Parsons, I went about three, four months ago. Rob Parsons, who's fairly well known, uh, was the founder of Care for the Family, came to Reading uh, one evening. And I went to listen to him. He comes from Cardiff, and, uh, and he was a rising star when I was in Cardiff, when Bacon was formed in Salof. Rob Parsons now has an OBE. But he describes as how as a teenager he came from a backstreet area of Cardiff that I know pretty well, without any real parental encouragement educationally, but an elderly couple with virtually no money, encouraged his faith as a teen, and believed in his distant and unlikely dream of becoming a lawyer. And he pays tribute to this day to their impact as what he calls dream catchers. What a lovely word. I love that word, dream catchers. You see, this couple couldn't do it themselves, but they helped him too. So is there anyone that you could be a dream catcher to? For example, could you covenant to pray for one of our young people out there, whether they're that high or that high? Could you kind of adopt them in prayer? Could you encourage them? Well, we're wrapping up now. The last four verses of this chapter relate what seems to be a random incident where the Antioch believers get a high power visit from a delegation of prophets from Jerusalem. And uh, prophets more often foretell what God is thinking um, than foretell the future. But this is the exception. And one of them called Agabus actually prophesies um, a severe famine that's right around the Roman world, as we read. And it's a documented fact. So and Luke is referring to it in retrospect. So I just want to make one point really about this. Because it is relevant to our own individual lives, but also to our life together as a church. As God told the Antioch church what was going to happen, but will you notice that he didn't tell them what to do about it? The initiative was entirely theirs. They responded actually by having a collection of, and sending it down with Barnabas and Saul down to Jerusalem uh, when that happened. Now earlier in the passage, Barnabas decides to involve Saul. Do you think he prayed about that? Almost certainly. Did God explicitly tell him what to do? Probably not. Although I guess that when he was praying, he probably had a little nudge from the Holy Spirit to confirm God's approval. But the point is fairly clear, isn't it? Because God sometimes plainly tells us what to do. But more often than not, he leaves the initiative to us to be interwoven with prayer. For many of us, we need to pray more. For some of us, the primary need is to act on what we already know. You know, in the military, you have a concept of standing instructions. So you leave somebody with instructions and they stay until they're countermanded or until you're told to stand down. So Jesus has left us standing instructions. Do we know what they are? Well, it's all there. It's in the Gospels. Just have to read them. So, for example, are we ministering to the poor? Did you notice last week with Cornelius, did you notice that whilst he wasn't a full member of the faith, although he prayed and was God-fearing, God noticed both the fact that he prayed and the fact that he had been generous to the poor. That actually got God's attention. And there's one thing in conclusion that we all need all know that we should be doing because it's a standing instruction, and that's to encourage one another, like Barnabas. Let it be real, let love be sincere, Scripture says, but let it be so. Amen.
1: Thank you, David. I felt that was really challenging about what will be our reputation. In a moment, we're going to come together and share in the bread and the wine of communion. And the bread and wine of communion tells the story, really, of of the character of Jesus. Sacrificial. Giving up his life for us. Going through what we can't even imagine in order to set us free from sin and death. We're going to sing now of God's faithfulness in the very well known song, Faithful One. Martin's going to lead us in that now. Let's stand together. barnabas we understand was full of the holy spirit and faith and we're to be faithful after our god who is faithful so let's as we sing of our faithful god let's be encouraged and let's give him all the glory